This is Our Prison's The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio. I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College and the coordinator of the Freedom and Captivity Initiative, and I'm your host for this week. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? Today, I'm going to be talking with Representative Grayson Luckner about housing and prisons and the relationship between them. Grayson, thank you so much for joining us. Grayson, you're a legislator in your second term, and you represent part of Portland in the Maine State Legislature. You serve on two committees, the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee, and on the newly created Joint Select Committee on Housing. You're known in Portland and beyond Portland as a tireless advocate for justice, um, as a tireless advocate on behalf of people who have been marginalized and made vulnerable within our current social structures. And you've long advocated for housing reform, for prison reform and prison eradication. So I'd like to start by getting to know you a bit. How did you end up in the legislature? Why did you pursue a seat? Were these topics that interested you that that got you into the legislature in the first place? Who who are you and how did you end up where you are? Wow. Uh, that's well, thank you, Catherine, for having me on the show. And um always happy to have the opportunity to talk about the issues that you know I really care about and what drove me to run for the legislature. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Maine, and I think um I've seen through, you know, I've I've lived other places too, but I've seen through um my my lifetime how it's gotten a lot harder to just make a living and just to exist in the state. Uh, I think a lot of it's because of like economic factors. Um, but you know, core to all of that is housing, and I just you know. Something I value so much about Maine, and I feel like like everybody, whether you moved here last week or you moved here, you know, thirty years ago, or your family's been here for six generations, or if you're a native Mainer, um, meaning you know of the Wabanaki tribe or you know the, one of the other tribes that lived here, um, what everybody values about this state. <clears throat> is our tight knit communities and the fact that, you know, we have this real sense here where, you know, neighbors take care of neighbors and, uh, you know, it's not really so much about wealth and individual status. It's like, you know, we have a real sense in me and I feel like, or at least I had the sense growing up that we value communities and, uh, having lived elsewhere in the country, having left to go to college and even like have the chance to work and, and travel, uh, internationally um you know it's something uh, coming back to maine i've just you know i i've loved and cherished about our state so much whether you're in portland the biggest city in the state or if you're in Presque Isle, or if you're somewhere in between it's like you know we just have these tight-knit communities and i think over the years i've seen how uh a lot of uh intersecting uh kind of forces that you know market and uh just conditions that have made it so it just kind of undermines and erodes communities so um and and i think chief one of the chief issues that you know is the housing crisis that makes it so hard for people to just live and live in the communities where they've grown up and um 
you know, work. And we have people who are teachers, who are librarians, who are doing like, you know, social workers who are doing like really great services for their communities who just can't afford to live in the communities where, where they work and they serve. And to me, there's something wrong with that. And, um, you know, so as you alluded to, like, you know, I think what fills the void and when, when our communities become unaffordable to like the median income earner, you know, you have an explosion in homelessness, which we've seen as well. And, what fills the void there for the lack of services that we have in other realms is um, policing and prisons. And I've said ever since I got elected that, you know, uh, public safety is bigger than just policing and prisons. If we're serious about creating public safety, then we need to be addressing housing and healthcare and education and employment and everything. You know, it's a whole spectrum. So, um, I think there's no simple answer for why I ran for the legislature. Certainly didn't do it for the money. Um, definitely, like, you know, I, I thought it would be, um, I thought I could make a real difference. And I think I feel like in some ways I have. And it's just, uh, it's, it's an adventure, you know, it's a privilege to be there. It's not always the easiest thing. Um, but I think, you know, it, it is a, it, it is a privilege to be in a position where I can, you know, advance policies that I care about. So that's uh, Thanks, the Rachel. long and short. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll also note how few representatives we have in the senators and representatives we have in the legislature who are in your age demographic. That's extremely unusual in Maine. Um, we skew much, much, much older in the legislature. And I, 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 I like to imagine what a difference it might make if we had better representation of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s than we actually do. It's a very small number. Uh, so yeah. making, making note of that. Well, let's talk about your two committee assignments, which again are criminal justice and public safety, and then the new Joint Select Committee on Housing. So can you tell our listeners, what do these communities do? What sorts of topics come before these committees? What do they exist to do? And where your where does your particular interest lie in terms of serving on both of those two committees? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, they're intersecting, and the criminal justice and public safety system really exists to plug the holes and the failures of all the other systems. You know, if we had a stronger, if we had a floor. The state of Maine, like, you know, high, you know, in the country in general, you know, the sky's the limit. There's no ceiling to how high you can go, but then there, there's no floor to like how low you can go either. And we don't have systems set up to like catch people um, and, and to support them in, in building their lives, no matter what their issues are. So um, I don't necessarily even see them as two separate committees, although the work that we get in each one is like vastly different. Um, so, you know, the, the criminal justice and public safety committee is a standing committee, which means that it exists every session. The housing committee is a select committee, which means it was just created for this one session in order to, you know, we're going to address this housing crisis in two years and then we'll, we'll dissolve the committee and, you know, we'll all pat ourselves on the back and go, you know, be happy 
which I don't think, you know, I, I think it should be a standing committee, but that's another topic. So anyway, the uh, Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee, um, it's everything about policing and prisons. As I mentioned before, we get stuff about emergency medicine. Um, but yeah, most, you know, most of my work, it, we, we get gun reform legislation, which is a huge topic that, you know, I've, it's so tragic about what's happening. And I don't think there's any actual easy way um, with a lot of public safety issues. Um, I think there's an easy way to draw a line between like the lack of uh, existing services and people, you know, ending up in uh, justice involved. Um, but with that, you know, with a mass shooting, I think it's harder. Of course, there's like, you know, the um, mental health aspect, which we don't have adequate um, services in, in that department. But just the availability of firearms in general, like not to get too off topic here, but I think that's just, you know, it's a it's another topic that comes to our committee in which I've, you know, routinely been you know an advocate of, of making sure that you know these firearms just aren't pervasively available in the community um to anybody who wants to get one so i've, I've uh, as a little bit of an aside you know that that's something i've been working on and another big topic area in our committee um so firearm violence so ems policing firearms um in prisons, jails, sheriffs, those are all the the interests that come to our committee. Um, and so having like that committee, like uh, my interest in it, I th and I think uh, it wasn't really actually when I was assigned to that in my first term in the 130th, it wasn't a committee uh, that was even really on my radar. I think I was assigned to that by the previous speaker because I was so outspoken in my campaigning about Black Lives Matter. And I really don't want to live in a state or a country or society where that's a um a radical statement. So I was very um and I still am uh very passionate about Black Lives Matter and about, you know. Like in it where that gets into policing and um you know using the police as a as a uh you know enforcement or a, a uh stopgap measure and um for plugging all the other holes that don't serve people and how it's disproportionately uh targeted towards people of color. And so that's, I think that's why I probably was assigned to criminal justice, but, um, you know, I have a lot of friends and allies who work in that space. I think, you know, growing up, I wasn't like a model student. I wasn't like a, um, uh, I don't think anybody had real great, um, you know, visions for my future. So I think I, you know, had I grown up in a different environment, like, you know, I think Long Creek probably could have, you know, I mean, I was, I was in trouble. I was in trouble quite a bit. And I think it was only for my privilege that, um, you know, I ended up staying out of 
places like Long Creek, the Long Creek Youth Development Center, and ultimately, you know, uh, stayed out of prison. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not like a, I've never committed any kind of a felony or anything, but you know, I certainly struggled with um, you know, substance growing up and through college, and thankfully, you know, I've uh, found some recovery. Um, so you know, but a lot of people who don't have my privilege get into those uh situations and they um you know have trouble they they don't have the support to get out of them so my interest in the criminal justice and public safety committee um is informed by my experience and making sure that it's not just a punitive system it's a restorative one and that goes into you know, the intersectionality with housing, which is also something I've struggled with, you know, finding housing stability. Um, and, you know, being, uh, being a tenant and being somebody who just didn't have a lot of autonomy in their housing, like how that is, uh, you know, an experience and, you know, people, Nowadays, like people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, like and onwards who are still living in like, you know, roommate situations, which is like didn't used to happen. And I was like in roommate situations forever, still am. Um, like I have a great roommate, so like, you know, I'm lucky, but it shouldn't just be like a situation where, you know, as adults who work like we should be able to afford decent places and have autonomy and where we live. So that's another issue. And just, you know, seeing like when I, when I moved to Portland back to Portland in uh 2014, like see that was right when like rents were kind of exploding. We had the highest increasing rents of like any city in the country. I, I believe for a number of years there for between like 2014 and 2019 um, and saw all the instability that goes along with that. And of course, now we have this post pandemic, we have this uh, proliferation of encampments and uh, that goes right back into the criminal justice system. So, you know, we're not addressing people living in tents with like housing, you know, we're addressing it with a criminal justice system. And we have this system where people like you can either go to prison or you can go to the jail or you can live on the street. Like those are kind of the options that are presented to you. And it's illegal to live on the street in a lot of ways. So where do you end up? Yeah. Um, and there's something wrong with that in my mind. So um, yeah. Thank you. This is Our Prisons The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio. And today we are talking with Representative Grayson Luckner about housing, prisons, and the relationship between the two. This is part one of a two-part conversation that we're going to be holding. Grayson, thank you for, for referencing your uh, your commitment to um, the message that we all heard loud and clear from Black Lives Matter about disproport the disproportionate impact of policing on Black communities. Here in, in Maine, uh, this is important for listeners to know, we have one of the worst 
racial disparities in the country in terms of the black to white disparity in incarceration. In Maine, it's nine to one. We're the fourth worst state in the country. Uh, that matters. I want to turn yeah, to example. Yeah, I want to return to a, a pretty meaty question, and we'll close out the program with this question. And then we'll we'll take up um, some of the uh, implications of this question in, in our next uh, in our next program. You were recently interviewed by the Colby College Justice Think Tank, which is a think tank of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated scholars who've been working all year on research related to restorative justice alternatives in Maine's criminal legal system. One of their research questions focused on investigating supportive and restorative pathways to re-entry. In their interview with you, they asked you about the importance of housing for managing a successful re-entry into society after prison. And you said something that really jumped out at me. So I wanna take the rest of the show to dig into your comment. You said, prisons are currently our, our primary form of public housing in Maine. Holy cow, prisons are currently our primary form of public housing in Maine. This is a shocking statement to make, but it gets at the heart of several really important things about how we manage our criminal legal system. It gets at first, as you've referenced, our willingness to invest in carceral solutions to social problems rather than in community solutions to social problems. It gets at the link between houselessness, arrest, and incarceration. And it gets at why we have such a high rate of recidivism, such a high rate at which people return to prison after serving a previous prison sentence and getting released. So I want to get into these points with you. Let's start with a simple question. What does it mean to say that prisons are our primary form of public housing in Maine? Yeah, um, I mean, I when I said that, I mean, I, I meant exactly that. Um, there's a little understood history of public housing in the United States and in Maine. Um, and actually, believe it or not, uh, nowadays, uh, most housing that was formerly publicly owned, there used to be some, uh, is now in private nonprofit ownership. Um, so there's that. So public housing is, is virtually a thing of the past. Um, and where we keep people housed where we, when they can't afford a place and they default. So when other systems fail people, which could very easily be addressed, they, you know, end up incarcerated. And that's where our state decides to house these people. We call people who are incarcerated, we call them residents, which, you know, I, we should have respectful language, but let's not sugarcoat the nature of, of their incarceration. <clears throat> so the state of Maine spends, you know, somewhere in the ballpark at $250 million a year, just on our state's corrections. And we house something like 1900 people who are incarcerated residents. We call them of the main prison system. That's not including all the County sheriffs, the 16 County sheriffs in their jails. So like statewide, I, I believe if you added up all the jails and the state prison system, um, Department of Corrections, you know, we're looking at close to a half a billion dollars a year 
in in revenue that's going into those programs. This year, through the Select Committee on Housing, we made a what was you know uh, hailed as a, uh, a historic investment in housing, and we spent seventy million. And, and that seventy million dollars didn't go towards building uh, long term sustainable solutions. You know, I mean, I, I voted for that budget and I supported that seventy million dollars because it's you know we're in a crisis, so we got to use the tools that are available to us. But one of those tools and where the majority of that money ended up going is towards this program called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is a way for developers to get. Uh, low interest financing in order to build uh, affordable housing to certain income groups. And there's a lot of issues with that program, but it's better than nothing. So, you know, we spent $70 million leveraging that program. But, you know, I would be willing to reckon we could keep a lot of people out of our prisons. We could reduce our corrections budget, stop the reliance on prison uh, for addressing problems like homelessness if we had a systemic approach to addressing the crisis in housing, and that would be through a mixed income community owned publicly owned, or at least partially, you know, it could be a public private ownership partnership um, developer. So that's one of the bills that I proposed and we're working it through committee now. Um, So, I think there are solutions out there, but when you look at the state's budget, it's like, well, yeah, we're housing people. We're addressing the crisis of housing in prison, in jail, and when we need to be spending the money in all these other places. So just to repeat the statistic, basically you're telling me that Maine is spending eight times as much on prisons and jails as on housing, right? You said the historic investment in housing was $70 million we're probably spending 500 million a year on prisons and jails. Right. Yeah. When you add up all the counties too. So that's not just through the state budget. So it'd be more, you know, I mean, to be fair and even handed, it would be something like in the neighborhood of, yeah, four four times as much. Yeah. Four times. And that's, that's on an ongoing basis. So every year the legislature, uh, you know, gives at least, you know, 240 million, towards uh towards the the corrections department of corrections uh bottom line and and this year we made a one-time investment of 70 million on other years it's like it's not it's way smaller than that so um to get into some kind of parity we would need to start spending on an ongoing basis uh yeah at least four times as much on housing than we currently do so let, let's close by talking about money. We've just got a few minutes left, and then we're going to get into comparative examples of other programs in other states and comparative examples of um, ways that we might go about ameliorating these crises here in Maine. But um, to close out this show today, let's talk about money. Why are we so much more willing to spend money to incarcerate people than to house them? And this is like a cultural question. Yeah, you know, yeah. That gives us no ceiling basically no ceiling to what we're willing to spend to incarcerate people and an absolute ceiling on what we're willing to spend to house people outside of jails. 
I mean, I wish I had the easy answer, but I think you nailed it, Catherine. I think it's, you know, it's cultural. It's a stigma. Um, I think it's this narrative that's been fed to us, you know, that, you know, people are willingly engaging in criminal behavior and they have better options available to them, but they, you know, they're just deciding to do this because of something inherently um, bad about them as people, which I reject. You know, I think most people who end up just as involved are reacting to circumstances around them that force them into these situations. Um, and so we could create systems that, you know, ameliorated the problem and sort of, you know, nipped it in the bud, so to speak, where we create systems where people don't have to get into, uh, you know, the justice system, uh, don't have to break the law in order to, um, survive or, or get by in life. Um, but I think it is just stigma. It's cultural, you know, and until a lot of people like experience it themselves or have a loved one, like, you know, sometimes once in a while I'll have a colleague from the other side of the aisle or even from my own side of the aisle who'll be like, you know, because one of the other issues that I've worked on a lot is uh, the opioid overdose epidemic. And that affects everybody. And you, so you'll have people on the other side of the aisle. and We typically don't see eye to eye on many things, but they're like, you know what? I, my son, my daughter, my cousin, like experienced an overdose. Maybe they survived, maybe they didn't. And I see eye to eye with you on this. So until it really affects people personally and they don't see their sons, their daughters, their cousins as bad people, they see them as, you know, they have compassion for those folks. So, um, like, let's just have, let's have a broader view of compassion, um, like start seeing everybody as like, you know, in some way, shape or form as a product of their circumstances rather than, you know, just their personal choices. Thanks, Grayson, for articulating that. I I, I have to agree with you. It, it continually stuns me that we would rather spend money to incarcerate people at a cost of $78,000 a year than to provide stable housing. Um, yeah. it, knowing as we do, having the evidence that we do for the link between houselessness and incarceration, houselessness basically being a mostly criminalized state to be in, because if you don't have a place to sleep and you end up camping out on private property or public property, you're breaking the law, which makes you a criminal, which sends you to jail. And it's right. a cycle. And that we refuse to break that cycle by investing in housing and instead invest in, you know, greater and greater opportunities to incarcerate people um, is the definition of a society that's uh, that's in trouble. Um, I, I want to thank you for joining us. We will pick up this conversation in next month's show. Uh, next week. Please join Marian Anderson for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. A special thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series. And to Lucas Brown, our sound engineer. We are Justice Radio.